All right, well, hey, it's my pleasure and honor to bring you God's Word this morning. Um, Pastor Randy is, you know, on a much-needed vacation, and uh, it's cool that, you know, we can, we can just worship without him and, and still, you know, be able to bring God's Word, so it's a blessing to be able to do that, and it's my honor and privilege, so thank you. Yes, I'm extremely nervous. I hope I do well. I hope I do him right, so, uh, but I know that you guys have got my back, right? All right, so no big deal. All right, um, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father God, I need you right now. I need you to help me deliver what you've laid on my heart to these people of Eagle Heights Church, God. So just be with me and make these words be your words and not my words. Amen. All right, so we are continuing the Esther Sermon Series. Oh, and kids, you can be dismissed to your classes if not already. We've got uh, the school age and the nursery right back over this way. All right. Thanks, kids and adults. All right, so the Esther Sermon Series. Pastor Randy's been taking us through the book of Esther. Man, this book, I've never studied this book so deeply as I have recently in preparing for this. And the more I do, the more fascinated I am with this book. This is not like reading Leviticus or, or one, you know, Deuteronomy where it's boring and, and you have to get through it. This is a cool book. You can read the whole thing in like 45 minutes and it's one of the coolest stories in God's Word. Very, very interesting things about it. So in the series, um, the different titles of the series, we've been going through those. In part one, Pastor taught us about God's unseen providence, where he taught us that God never stops working his plan for his glory and for your good. And that was the big, the big lesson there. Then part two was Queen Esther's strength and dignity. She, we learned about her beauty, not just on the outside. She was, the king found her most beautiful of everybody in the kingdom, but she was beautiful on the inside, a woman of character. And we learned that God uses individual people to accomplish his purposes in the world. It's not always just God's people as a whole. It's individuals doing God's purposes, which is a crazy lesson that we need to keep in mind. All right, and then in part three, a connected and courageous father on Father's Day, we learned that Mordecai stayed connected and engaged with his uh, um, cousin, but he was raising her. He, he stayed connected to her, encouraged her, and challenged her, and we learned that great fathers act intentionally to bring good in their lives for others, all right? Great fathers are intentional. And then today, part four. It's going to be called Haman's Hatred, Pride, and Prejudice. And we're going to learn about the presence and the effect of evil on our anger and what it can turn into. All right, and we're going to learn that by looking at this man named Haman. So all these lessons do come from a book or based on this book. Um, it's called uh, Great Lives from God's Word. And this particular one is about Esther, and Pastor teaches from these um, several different times about different Bible characters, so there's some really awesome lessons in here. It's a great read. It's $10 on Amazon. It's by Chuck Swindoll, um, and so um, definitely highly, highly recommended if you would love to learn more about Esther. All right, so let's talk about a quick summary. Let's look at the Persian kingdom. This story happens in about 450 B.C., 
And the Persians are in charge of the world at that time. This is before the huge Roman Empire. This is the Persian Empire. It's in your history books, and they are the, in control of the most of the world at this time. It's the largest empire at this time. It's a very interesting uh, story on how they come about and then how they fail. But, but it covers everything from India all the way to Ethiopia, in Egypt. And notice it covers all of Israel and Judea. It covers everywhere where the Jews live. So it's covering the entire Jewish world. So this is not just some random King Xerxes with a small kingdom. This is the, he's covering the entire Jewish world, okay? So King, um, ah- King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name, and some of your Bibles it will say that. In the NIV, it says King Xerxes, and that's the, his name in Greek. His real name was in Persian, Shearsha. Shearsha. Isn't that interesting? I'm always interested in where these words come from. So it doesn't matter what, what you name it. A very wise person told me, I, um, I asked Philip Bender one time, I was reading scripture for, for uh, service, and I said, Hey, how do you pronounce these names? And he goes, Oh, let me tell you how to pronounce that. It doesn't matter doesn't matter. It doesn't make a bit of difference. You just need to know what's going on in the story, right? Okay, so you guys can forgive me for messing up these names as I read more of this, of this scripture. But King Xerxes holds a six-month-long open bar party in his third year of his reign. His father just gave the kingdom to him. He's in there three years. He holds a six-month-long party for all his nobles from all the provinces. They come together and have a big blowout. King Vashti, Queen Vashti, his queen, is there, and he says, um, you know, alcohol may have been involved, but he said, hey, I want to show off to my friends how beautiful my queen is. So he tells her, hey, come, um, come prance around in front of my friends. And she says, I'm throwing my own party. I'm not coming. I've got my own stuff to do. All right, and so that makes him very angry. And what do his nobles say? They say, hey, if you let your wife not come when you command it, then what are our wives going to think they can do when we want them to do something? So they convince him to depose her as queen. And he does. So she is deposed. And then it's believed that this is the time where he goes to battle against the Greeks in the famous movie called 300, and he's defeated at least the first time against the Greeks, and he needs a new wife. He comes back all sad. I need a new wife to make me happy. So how does he find a new wife? He holds a beauty contest in all 127 provinces to seek a new queen, and Esther is one of the ones that's chosen to be presented in front of the king. So they bring her She's orphaned. She's being raised by Mordecai, her cousin, the father figure we just mentioned. So she joins the harem. She receives seven maidens to serve her. She goes to the best palace, and she receives a year of beauty treatments before she even meets the king for the first time. All right, so here's a picture of Esther. Uh, There's all kinds of photos of her uh, uh, paintings through the years because the story is so influential. She's taken into the king in his seventh year of reign. So it's four years later after he deposed Queen Vashti, and she's brought in uh, in his seventh year, and he loves her the most. It does not say that she was the most beautiful in the kingdom. It says that he found her the most beautiful, which is important because it means that God was working on him in his heart 
for this plan to come to fruition, for God's plan to work, because God's always working. So he finds her the most beautiful, and he makes her queen. She's now queen over the largest kingdom in the entire world. And Mordecai, being a good father figure, he's sitting at the king's gate checking up on her all the time. And he hears two guards here of a murder plot, and he tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king finds out it's true and has those two people killed. But Mordecai never gets honored for it until much later in the story. All right, so that's chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Esther. And so mostly we're going to be talking today about chapter 3. And this is where we're introduced to Haman, or Haman, or it doesn't matter. All right, so Haman, he's an evil-looking dude. All right, so uh, he's in, the, in the, the movies they've made about this story. He's always the bad guy, which he is. He's, he's the enemy of the Jews, as God's Word says. Uh, but he is an Agagite. Now, here's our very first something to learn. All right, Haman is a descendant of King Agag, whom God ordered Saul to kill back hundreds of years ago. But Saul disobeyed God and allowed Agag to live. You see, Haman wouldn't be alive today if Saul had obeyed God. The enemy of the Jews would not exist. I'll read it to you. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel is the prophet of God. He said to Saul, the king of the Jewish people, this is what the Lord God Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death women, men, children, infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Annihilate them, God tells uh, Saul to do. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites And um, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and the fat calves and the lambs. And they saved everything that was good. They disobeyed God. So Samuel says, what have you done? What is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul said, "Uh, uh, the soldiers... They brought them back from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle uh, to sacrifice them to God. But we totally destroyed the rest. I don't even have to add to it. That's exactly what it says. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight of the Lord's. He was greedy. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went to the mission, of the, uh, the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back King Agag for their king. One small little disobedience. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle for the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Plundering will be a theme later, so you guys put a pin in that one. And then Samuel replied... We have a slide on this one. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. That's a very famous verse that will preach all day long by itself. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord and he has rejected you as king. Man, he lost his kingdom 
because he disobeyed God. Saul's disobedience led to the loss of his kingdom, and in Esther's time, the threat of annihilation of all Jews. Paul's disobedience threatens the presence of all Jews. And why is that so significant? What else comes from the Jews? Jesus. Salvation comes from the Jews. Very, very important. So don't miss this, slide nine. One person's disobedience can have a consequence for generations. Man, that's a lot of pressure on us. One person's disobedience can have a consequence for generations, and we know that to be true. You may know people who say, yeah, my grandfather did this, he was a drunkard, he left my grandma, and it affected your family for generations. Think about the first man, Adam and Eve, their disobedience. We're still living with the, the sin, the curse of sin today because of one act of disobedience. So Haman the Agagite is alive today because of Saul's disobedience, but instead of being thankful, the Agagites retained hatred for the Jews. They didn't say thanks for letting our king live. They hated the Jews. And Haman is a descendant of these people, so he was raised his entire life hating the Jewish people. So he already has this built-up hate, just like somebody else recently. Before there was Hitler, there was Haman. Haman's got it out for the Jews, just like Hitler did. And we see this happen several different times. Even King Herod, when Jesus was a baby, wanted to wipe out the Jews. All right, this is um, the Jewish people have been the enemies of Satan their entire existence because they're God's chosen people. And they will continue because now we have Hamas, whose sole existence is to completely wipe out the Jewish people. And it's their mission. And they're trying to do it today. You see it in the news all the time. The Jewish people will always have enemies, and but God will always protect them. But back in Esther's time, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, he gets promoted. He's the king's number two man. He's very, very wealthy. Okay? The king probably loves that about him. So, but by law, Haman would walk around uh, the city or the citadel, and people were required to bow and pay homage to him. And so people did, all the citizens, except for one man. And that was Mordecai. When, um, here's a picture of what Haman might have looked like. All these famous paintings. Man, when you Google this stuff, just the coolest paintings come out. So um, I like to just at least show it so you have something in your mind's eye when you're, when you're thinking about the story. But chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Why? Because he has been raised to hate the Jews his entire life. Instead, Haman looked for a way to kill all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes, the entire Jewish world. He took it personal. He took an offense personal and expanded it to the entire race of people, that person who offended him. All right? That's what anger can do 
when it's unchecked. Then verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people. He doesn't even list who they are. Dispersed among the people in the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Jewish people were called to be holy, to be separate. Their customs are different from those of other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators in the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring. This is what Randy just read. He gave his signet ring to Haman. and said, you've got all the power that I have. Keep the money. Do what, do what you want with the people. This is where we need to be reminded that when the chips are down, God is still working. Amen? God is still working in your life and in mine when these things happen. And you don't know what's going on until it's over. And you look back and you see, wow, God really was active. It does not have to be only godly people that God works with. He works with evil people. He works on evil people. And he makes things happen for his purposes and for your good. All right, that was the big idea back from part one. God never stops working. So let's remember that one. So. All right, verse 13, dispatchers were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text was sent out for everybody to be ready. Man, he's going to murder an entire race of people on one day. Haman took his anger at Mordecai to the next level. And many would say this became rage. Anger becomes rage. So, but let's be clear, anger is not the same as rage. Rage brings foolish acts without thinking. And the Proverbs talks a lot about that. All right. So very different from righteous indignation. You can be angry. Jesus was angry. Love that story. He cleanses the temple, makes a cord, and whips them out. Whips the, the people who are selling the animals for sacrifice. You have made God's house into a store, into a shop, into a marketplace. All right? So anger is not the problem. It's um, unchecked anger that turns into rage. Unchecked anger. So Haman's anger, he was angry at Mordecai. His foolish rage through the whole city into confusion, not just the Jewish people. Could you imagine being a Jewish person knowing that your entire race is going to be wiped out in 11 months, because that's when they determined to do it, and the entire city was in confusion. The couriers went out spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. They're chilling. They sat down to drink, but the entire city of Susa was bewildered. They're going nuts. What the heck? Rage affects everybody. It affects an entire city. So what does God's word say about anger? Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Stirring up the anger. All right. Proverbs 29.22, an angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. And then 3033, for a churning cream produces butter and a twisting the nose produces blood, but stirring up anger produces strife. We get all these imageries of what humans tend to do. 
they tend to stir up anger. It's human nature. You may not think of yourself as doing that, but I promise you, you do, and I do too. You stew on something. There's, that's why we have the words for that. All right, it keeps going. Psalm 37, 8. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. And then Ecclesiastes. An angry person stirs up conflict. A hot-tempered person commits many sins. I think that was... Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. My notes were incorrect. All right. But we get it over and over again. We could go all day long with verses on anger. God knows us. He knows our nature. And so that's why he put in his word over and over again to watch out for anger. Because it will turn into something evil. So here's our big idea for today. Unchecked anger spreads poisoning and damaging your life and the lives of others. And that's what we're really going to learn today. It's not just you that when you're angry and you don't check it with God's word, it's going to affect those around you. And that's really significant. Haman focused his anger on the Jews, and he made a foolish decision, and he left it unchecked, and it affected the whole world, the whole Jewish world. Here's, he takes it even farther. He had everything. He was second in command, very wealthy. The entire city paid him homage every time he went out, and it wasn't enough. Because of his rage, he had no peace. And you might be able to envision something like that happening to us today. When you're stewing on something, nothing around you will make you happy. You could go to Disney World and have a miserable time because you're angry about something that happened on the way there. It can happen. In uh, Haman's rage against Mordecai, verse 9, Haman went out that day happy and high in spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, he observed that neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, and he was filled with rage against Mordecai. He's full of rage because Mordecai didn't fear him. Calling together his wife and friends, Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him. And now he elevated him above the other nobles and the officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king at the banquet so she could, that she could give. And she invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife and friends then commit, or convince him to kill Mordecai and hang him on gallows that he had built. Now, in Jewish tradition, they believe that Haman sent his son to where the Jewish people were keeping the boards from Noah's Ark 1,500 years later, and he uses the boards from Noah's Ark to build the gallows to hang people from. Isn't that interesting? Because he thinks that it's a, a symbol of destruction of the Jews because God used that to destroy the world. He doesn't know that God used the ark as a sign of life, of newness, of new creation. Very interesting. Even Buddha said, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Holding that poison in and stewing on it and stirring it up is poison to, for you. 
not the other person. Here's an example of holding on to anger. There's, there was a dad in Virginia, and the parents were divorced when the baby was very young, the baby girl. And the dad made child support payments for 18 years. And for 18 years, he was angry about it. For 18 years, he was ticked that he had to pay and the wife didn't. So what did he do? He let it stew and let it stew. And then on his final child support payment, he backed up a truck and dumped $800 worth of pennies into their front yard. Pretty crazy, right? What do you think the daughter felt? He was in his anger of 18 years turned into rage, made him make a stupid decision. She said, it really hurt. It was damaging. It doesn't matter if you're young or adult. The actions of your parents will always have some effect on you. She had not spoken to her father in years and has no interest in having a relationship with someone who disrespected her mother like that. He, he loved his daughter, but now she doesn't want to have anything to do with him because of what he did. One foolish act, okay? So let that be a heed to us. Again, the big idea, unchecked anger spreads poison, damaging your life and the lives of others, the lives of your kids, the lives of your daughters. So I have a big question for us. How do we apply this to us? Whose face is on your dartboard? Who do you lose your temper with most often? We've got to ask ourselves, is it a family member? Is it a boss? Maybe somebody in church? Or if you're like me, that guy that cuts you off? I know my wife is going, are you preaching to yourself right now? Yes, yes I am, especially about traffic. <laughs> so I have a very important reminder for us. We are Christians, and if you're a Christian and a child of God, we're challenged to be different, to be holy, to be separate from the world, to be in the world but not of the world. And it's very, very difficult, right? I mean, we're subject to all the same emotions that everybody else is. You don't become a Christian and suddenly become a good person or a perfect person. It's a process. God works on us and we work on ourselves. It's hard. It's hard because it's human nature to be angry. It's human nature to become angrier and angrier about something the more we think about it. In fact, it's called retaliatory anger. When someone does something bad to you, some, whenever someone does something bad to you, you get angry and you attack back. That's retaliatory anger. And then if you don't keep that in check with self-control, it will become the retaliation syndrome. This is a real thing. When both sides are so offended and retaliate in a downward spiral. What happens whenever somebody offends you? You get back at them, right? Just one level above how much they impacted you. And then what do they do? Now they want to get back at you, even more so than you hurt them. And it's a downward spiral that erodes and it will erode both of you and turn into rage and something really bad can happen. But it's human nature. It happened with the Persians and the Jews in Persia. One side experienced increased sense of helplessness and defensiveness. Defenselessness. The Jews. 
They're being attacked. They're threatened to be killed. They're about to be killed. It's only a few months. There's nowhere to go. They can't just run. It's all the Jews in the entire kingdom. It's a law that you have to be killed. And then once they um, receive the ability to defend themselves, then they attack back. The tables were turned. But thankfully, the Jews, they did not attack in a way that we probably would. They didn't take and be offended and then attack back and get revenge one level higher than they were offended. They showed restraint. They did exactly what we as Christians are supposed to do. So I have to spoil the story for you and tell you the rest of the story in order to drive this point home. Are you ready? Here's the end of the story. The decree has been issued to kill all the Jews in the Jewish world, and Esther risks her life to go talk to the king and plead for the lives of the Jewish people. She throws a banquet. She invites the king and Haman, and she tells the king in front of Haman about Haman's evil plan to kill and wipe out and destroy all of the Jews. Now, the king had no idea that it was about the Jewish people. He didn't know that Esther was a Jew. This is where she tells him. He's very, very upset. And the Bible says in a drunken rage, he leaves the room and goes to control himself. When he comes back in, Haman is falling on Esther's bed, begging for his own life. The king sees that and assumes that he's assaulting her, rips him up off the bed and has him killed instantly, hanging You know where? On the gallows that Haman had already built to hang Mordecai on. It's a fascinating story of reversal. So then the king says, hey, Mordecai, you're an upstanding Jewish person. I can trust you. I'm going to give you my signet ring that I gave to Haman, and you're my new Haman. You're my new second in command. Wow. So then Esther says, well, king, what are we going to do? The king says, I'll give my signet ring to Mordecai. Mordecai, you pass a law to protect the Jews and do whatever you want in the king's name. So under Mordecai's decree, the Jews are given to the right to defend themselves. He says, the Jews now have the right to defend themselves against any attack. And they can defend their, their homes, women, children, and their belongings against anyone who's attacking them. So what do you think happens? The day comes, the uh, Persians go ahead and attack the Jews and try to kill them, and the Jews wipe out all of their attackers and take all of their... No, they don't. Hold on a second. Slide 28, chapter 8. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of nationality or province who might attack them and their own women and children and plunder the property of their enemies. They are given the right to attack and plunder, take all the goods for themselves, all the cattle, the houses, all the belongings in the houses. Then we skip down to chapter 9. When it came time to occur, the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them in the city of Sittatel of Susa. The Jews killed and destroyed 
500 men. They also killed the 10 sons of Haman, the, sons of, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Why would they not lay hands on the plunder? They only killed the men, not the women and the children. They allowed the women and the children to live, and they left all of their belongings for the women and the children to survive. They showed mercy when they didn't have to. They were very angry, and they had a right to be rageful, and they weren't. They showed self-control. Then Esther says, if it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out the day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Once again, again, the next day, the Jews showed restraint. They did not kill the women and children, but they left the property for them. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. And over the entire kingdom, they killed 75,000 men, but nobody laid hands on the plunder. What an incredible story of reversal. The Jews were, street, were free to strike back in retaliation, but they resisted the temptation to go too far. What an awesome lesson for us that we can apply daily. Not only did the Jews gain mastery over their enemies, they gained mastery over themselves. They had self-control. You see, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And if we're children of God, we're supposed to be using self-control. As Christians, we have a responsibility to exhibit self-control. This is our next don't miss this. As Christians, we have a responsibility to exhibit self-control over our anger, or we can easily cause havoc to the body of Christ, to those Christians around us. Why do we have this responsibility? First, we are to be different from the world. We are to be holy, for God is holy. In Romans 12:1. This is what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's what we're called to be, separate and different. We don't take our cues from what the world does, even if you have the right to. The world doesn't forgive, it retaliates, and we're called to forgive. The second thing, we are members of the same family, God's body of Christ. Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment 
in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us is one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, through many, we form one body, each member belonging to the others. We are one body. We need to treat each other as such. And then third, the Lord is your defender. This is the best news. We don't even have to worry about getting revenge on somebody. Romans 12, 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. There it is right there. Just don't do it. Be careful what you do in the, in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. That's how we're supposed to treat our enemies. Do not be overcome with evil, but be overcome with good. That's what God says we're supposed to do with our anger. So, how do you apply this message? You seek the Lord's help to control your anger, and you leave the, the, uh, what makes you angry up to him. Seems pretty easy, doesn't it? But it's challenging because of human nature. Seek the Lord's help to control your anger and leave what makes you angry up to him. All right, there's a really cool story. I'll end with this story. It's by Corey Tinboom. If you've ever heard of her, she's a hero of the faith in World War II in Harlem, Netherlands. Her family owned a watch shop. And inside the watch shop, they would hide Jewish people from the Germans who were out to take them to prison, take them to concentration camps. And they built holes in their walls of the watch shop and a network system within their house. And over a couple of years, they protected 800 Jewish people from German capture. And as a Christian family, they were also able to share the love of Christ with these Jewish people. It's a really amazing story. She ended up going to a concentration camp herself along with her sister, and her sister died there. And so she wrote the book, The Hiding Place, that I read when I was in fourth grade being homeschooled. And if mom's watching, she'll remember fondly those days uh, when we read that story. Very fascinating book. If you, if you would like to, I definitely highly recommend that one as well. She wrote The Hiding Place, and then later she wrote a sequel called Tramp for the Lord, telling the story of what God has done with her life since then. And so she writes in there, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown belt, a hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland 
to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. This is just a few years after she was imprisoned. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. A huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, my, her ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day needed to be forgiven. And I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by the asking? I could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. To me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can, forget, can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But you supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the outstretched hand in front of me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intently as I did then. What a challenge it is to us, especially to me, if she can forgive this prison guard. At the moment she meets him, why am I holding on 
not forgiving people who have offended me. Even when it occurred years ago. So let's look at Christ's words on forgiveness just in case we're still having trouble understanding forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty five. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And then Matthew 6, 14 to 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives as a prior condition. This is um, Corey Ten Boom speaking. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. How can we expect to be blessed by God's forgiveness, by Christ's forgiveness for his act on the cross if we're holding on to resentment for other people? So, Church family, let's be like the Jews were in ancient Persia and show restraint when we're right to be angry and then follow that with the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the book of Esther and for what we can learn even from such evil people as Haman. God, may you work in our hearts work in our lives, soften our hearts so that we will forgive those who have offended us, just as you have forgiven all of mankind who has offended you. 